Well, it's a great privilege for me to be sitting here today with Dr. Bill Edgar uh, from the United States, from France, from Switzerland, from the world. Where, have you lived in any other countries apart from those three? No, you've named the three we, we've lived in. Uh, of course, I've traveled a great deal to other parts of the world, but we've lived, I grew up in Paris, um, spent some of my uh, schooling in the States. Uh, my parents moved to Switzerland, and so that was home for a while. Got married, back to the States, went over to Aix-en-Provence to work in a seminary there, and now I've been in Philadelphia for nearly 30 years. Oh. And did you come from a believing family yourself, Bill? I did not, or, or at least they were not evangelical Christians. They called themselves Christians, because if you're not Jewish, you call yourself Christian, but I never remember taking anything about the faith seriously. At one point, my mother sent me to Sunday school because she thought kids should do that. But I, they didn't do much for me. We cut out little paper Abrahams, and it was just, um, it was nice. But I didn't hear the gospel, not probably because it wasn't there, but because I just didn't hear it. Uh -huh. Interesting. So uh, how was it you came to hear the gospel yourself? So a professor at Harvard uh, in a course that I took, um, befriended me. And um, he saw that I was seeking, and so we spent a lot of time talking together. And at the end of my sophomore year, we were going to Switzerland with my brother, and he said, well, in that case, you must visit a great friend of mine. His name is Francis Schaefer. And um, he has the same kind of faith I do, but he's very creative and very persuasive and you'd just enjoy meeting him. So I tucked away the phone number in my pocket, and about halfway through the summer, I decided I'll go have a look at Francis Schaefer. So I called them, went down there. They invited me for the weekend, which I thought was pretty nice of a family that didn't know me. When I got there, I realized it was a community, and um, I loved every moment of it. Uh, we had a discussion group. We had a worship service. We had prayer. And most of all, I had a long, long conversation with Francis Schaefer in the midst of which, somewhere, I just knew it was true. Hmm. And so he made me pray, which I'd never done. Well, I'd said the prayer book prayers, but I hadn't prayed to God personally, and I didn't quite know what to say, so he helped me with that. And then I ended up staying there for the rest of the summer and coming back over and over and over again to be nurtured in uh, my new faith. Hmm. And then... Um, finished college, and decided to go to seminary. I was heading to the music field. I thought maybe I'd get some theology under my belt mm -hmm. to find out more about my new faith. So I looked at seminaries and went to a place called Westminster in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Named after Westminster in London, perhaps. Indeed. <laughs> it was named after the, um, not just the Minster, the area of London, but uh, the fathers who penned the Westminster Confession yeah. and Catechisms yeah. and so forth. Fantastic. Right. I love in, uh, in your book on Schaefer, you talk about um, how, whereas some, uh, the legacy of some has been um, an institution, the legacy of Schaefer was people. Yeah. And that's what you're describing there. He sat, listened to you, talked with you. You talk about the warmth of the welcome that he gave to you and the friendly way in which he interacted. We've, we talk um, a lot in London, as you look at the heroes of London's church history, the closer you look into their lives, you find how each one of them 
exemplifies what Jesus says when he says, if you're faithful with the small things, you will be faithful with the great yeah, also. Right, yeah. And that's, um, yeah, these people, the people we celebrate are the people who were faithful with the great things. But the closer you look, you realize they were faithful with the small. Mm. And this is something which Schaefer clearly... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so many parts of his life were not visible. Um, there were eventually visible parts. He did films and books and so forth. But as you suggest, uh, much of the work of pastoral care, evangelism, teaching was done uh, very quietly in uh, seminars or one-on-one. One-on-one. And uh, so, absolutely, yeah. I was struck by that. We went to um, morning service in All Souls a couple of days ago, and Rico Tice preached a marvelous sermon. And then we happened to go to a little cafe um, later just to catch our breath and so forth, and there was Rico talking quietly to an individual and all absorbed in the conversation. I thought, now this, this man is consistent with what he preaches. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah, that's wonderful. We do see, uh, we see that example again and again. In fact, <laughs> those are the ones who seems the Lord allows them to continue, mm-hmm. it seems. Mm-hmm. So listening to Os Guinness talking about living there at Labrie, we see a very attractive picture of a of a man who was very welcoming and friendly. Also, Oz, interestingly, talks about how he says, Schaefer didn't seem to read a lot of books, he seemed to read a lot of magazines. But you, as you say, he, he developed a certain sense of, uh, of uh, he, he was good at generalizations, is a phrase you, you seem to use. Yeah, so he had a nose for That's generalizations. That, um, and he was excited about a worldview in which everything had a place, um, although there was mystery as well. Um, he um, maybe didn't read a lot of books, but um, his library was full of books. But people would send him articles from, or clippings, or photocopies, and he would devour those. And sometimes he was so interested in them, he would build an evening seminar um, on the basis of some article that someone had sent him. So his mm. knowledge was eclectic. Mm but very creative, very um, attractive, because he was drawing from so many different sources, mm. and he wasn't just a trained academic. Mm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what I do. But um, he was just um, able to pick things from different parts of life and uh, apply them in surprising ways. Mm. And show them up for their gospel lack or their gospel illustration. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, so when I was at Harvard and was a Christian, um, we invited Francis Schaeffer to come give some lectures. And I gave scintillating, powerful lectures in one of the lecture halls, and it was packed. Um, then I decided I'd take courage in hand and invite some of my closest friends, most of which were agnostics at best, to have dinner with him in the private dining room of my um, house. And um, as the time drew closer, I got more and more nervous. Would he be able to handle these Harvard kids? And, you know, these are the brightest and the best. And um, So I introduced him, and we had some discussion. And then there was the question and answer. One of my friends asked him, um, which was the better Buddhism, Minhayana or Theravada? And I thought, oh, he, <laughs> he's going to be lost. Not at all. He pulls out, I don't know from where, he had read somewhere that in the early um, trade routes around uh, South Asia, 
they often met in the Indus Valley. And uh, in their meetings, they would exchange not only goods, but philosophies and gods. And um, one of the emerging philosophies was a lowest common denominator philosophy where God had to be everything and everywhere, and we call that pantheism. That's where pantheism emerged. I thought, where, where did you get this from? So my friend was completely bowled over. Um, and, you know, the, the other one I remember was a, a friend um, was in city planning, which was an early development for those days. It was the 60s. And um, he was all excited about the computer, which was emerging, and how the computer is going to help us with our city planning. What do you think, Dr. Schaefer? And I thought, oh, no, what does he know? Not at all. He said, he looked at him and he said, what about the place of man and his humanity? And my friend was completely stunned. He said, oh, yeah, oh, I hadn't thought of that. You know? Oh, wow. <laughs> so all this eclectic reading, I mean, he could pull it. He had a mental file up here, and he would pull things out when it's appropriate. Mm, mm. So That's brilliant. Yeah. I've heard similarly, um, Tim Keller says that uh, people ask him, how do you get time to read all these books? And he says, actually, he reads the New York Review of Books, yeah. wherein you can get in yeah. a few paragraphs, you get the synopsis and you get the, you get the distilled That's argument. Right. Yeah. Of course, it's a very useful way of saving yourself perhaps a thousand pages of yeah, exactly. <laughs> conclusions. Yeah, excellent. So um, you were in Labrie in the 60s. You were around characters. Did you know Oz? And, um... Yeah, that we met through Labrie, um, but we didn't actually meet at Labrie, interestingly. Um, on a speaking tour, he was with Francis Schaeffer, um, and he came around to Boston, where I was in college. And um, Schaeffer gave these prophetic lectures, and Oz gave sort of systematic lectures. Everything had three points. And every subpoint was three points. And I thought... You know, he's good, but um, this is a bit of a parroting of Francis Schaeffer, a better organized outline than Schaeffer used. Well, uh, little did I know that years later, he, after studying in Oxford, um, would write a dissertation on Peter Berger in which um, he applied Berger to the discipline of apologetics. I have his, dis I have his dissertation at home. And um, his great discovery was that human knowledge isn't just intellectual, it's institutional and it's psychological. And so he studied Berger's idea of the sociology of knowledge and um, the various ways in which uh, knowledge gets institutionalized and the institutions reinforce the knowledge and, and, and back and forth. So Marx would have said, that's all there is, is the institution. Mm -hmm. But Berger says, no, there's a... Uh, coming and going between the human mind and um, what he called structures of plausibility. And I believe that Oz changed much of the face of Christian apologetics by making us aware of the um, institutional level of knowledge, the structures of plausibility. You know, he, he made remarks like existentialism would never have grown on the right bank of Paris, because that's where the banks are, the dress stores, the cinemas, the, you know, so forth. But it naturally grew in the left bank, because that's where all the murky cafes were. And in fact, Sartre um, created much of his philosophy in back rooms, in smoke-filled uh, cafes. Mm -hmm. And um, that doesn't explain existentialism, but it puts it in a setting mm. which helps us to make judgments about it. Oh, 
It's, it's fascinating. It sounds something, like something Vern Poitras would write. Yeah, he in would. In terms of taking something right apart for its um, godless, godless. He always goes to Trinity, so um, instinctively, doesn't he? Vern? Yeah, the perspectival view of knowledge. Um, it's usually in three parts, yeah. Yeah, superb. Excellent. So, um, obviously, Francis Schaeffer had a huge impact on you, but, of course, you're in uh, Westminster, where you were around the Vantillian people, and, but also, as well as what you're describing, characters who were at Westminster when um, it was uh, new. And some of the men of truth were also really men of grace. So characters like Ed Clowney trying to bring Schaeffer and Van Til together and, and trying to find ways for um, the gospel to be enunciated to people who wouldn't necessarily be in the same party and so on. Can you talk a little about um, how it was around characters like Clowney and these? So um, I was at Westminster at a time of transition um, we were enjoying the last of the founding fathers who were close to retirement, including Van Til, Edward Young, the Old Testament professor, oh, yeah. um, all kinds of wonderful people, uh, Paul Woolley, the church historian who was also registrar, um, welcomed us into his home. Barbara and I spent our first year of marriage there. Um, but it was also a time of transition when the younger people were coming in, Ed Clowney, being one, and Ed Clowney uh, was the first president that Westminster had. And there were people who didn't want a president, but it was pretty necessary if you wanted to have accreditation, which Americans care about. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to bring the seminary to a public face more than anyone had cared about before. So he was um, very present in all kinds of conventions, the Lausanne meeting. He went to the, the big missionary convention sponsored by InterVarsity that occurs every th three years, and he was a main speaker there. And so he wanted us, he wanted the seminary's goods, its fruit, to be known by the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And he hired people like John Frame and others who could, who could do that, make um, theology into something that's accessible. Mm -hmm. So we were there in those transition years, and the, the Westminster today is in some ways a very different place from the one I went to. Same doctrinal standards, but uh, today we, we really are in the marketplace much more mm. than we were in, in the, the old days. Um, mm. No fault of theirs, it's just they had battles uh, to fight that yeah. um, once they were fought and largely lost, incidentally, um, then Westminster had to have an, another identity and mm. people like Ed Clowney put it in that place. Mm, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, we listen to his... It's an extraordinary thing to be able to listen to these people who you've heard of for years, and now they're, all their lectures are available online. Westminster's been leading the, leading the charge there, putting a lot of E.J. Young stuff online. I listen to him as I jog. You know? Oh, good. <laughs> Which is an amazing thing. Yeah, Sometimes is. you hear a plane fly over, and you yeah. think, it was a plane. <laughs> I remember <laughs> airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's something about 50, 60 years ago, and there's a plane going so is there someone from church history who you would draw, draw people's attention to who has been a real blessing to you, a companion who you've mined for gold? Oh, there's, there's many, many great heroes. Um, one of my um, revered heroes is Augustine. He wrote the Confessions, which is a personal testimony about his walk with God, how he became a believer and so forth. And then he wrote the monumental City of God, which is a critique of paganism against the charge that Christians were responsible for the sack of Rome. 
And he wrote the defining beginning works on the Trinity and um, on sovereign grace and much else. So he's a hero of mine, not only because of his amazing intellect, one of the greatest minds ever, but also because of his humble and lively walk with God. Uh, he was deeply, deeply pious. And the two kind of go together in his, in his writings. So I love Augustine. Uh, John Calvin would be similar, different age, different purpose, but uh, one of the tremendous theologians of all times. When I was in college, I took the Renaissance and Reformation course there, and I'll never forget the lecturer saying, I'm going to introduce you to the most brilliant mind in Western history. Now, I hate most of what he says, but I have to say, he was the man. And so we, we got this uh, admiration for somebody who was obviously from a very different place religiously, um, but um, he, the admiration was, was genuine and had to be there because of... And Calvin, um, again, like Augustine, a very different context, was a man of deep piety, uh, prayer, uh, mm. preached thousands of sermons, wrote thousands of letters to people, um, cared about worship and devotion, wrote the Institutes, which is one of the great monuments of, of the faith. So I go back to him over and over again for, um, you know, inspiration. Mm. And so you could go on. There's many people to, you know, bring it up to the present, including, mm. of course, Schaefer, Van Til, um, Warfield, um, mm. My maybe outstanding hero in biblical studies is a man named Gerhardus Voss, who um, was a professor at Princeton and almost single-handedly developed the discipline of biblical theology. Not to be confused with the Bartian biblical theology movement, but evangelical biblical theology, which looks at the progressive unfolding of revelation mm in scripture and how one age builds on the other, culminating in Jesus Christ. Mm. And um, while Francis Schaeffer loved the Bible and he opened up scripture to us, um, Voss showed us the organic development of revelation, perfectly harmonious from one age to another, but responding to different challenges, different um, opportunities, as I say, culminating in, in, in Christ. So his writings on the Bible, on the covenant, on eschatology, on so many disciplines is what defined the way I look at the Bible mm, today. Mm, yeah, yeah. The whole idea of redemptive history. Redemptive history. Yes. Who would you say has developed his thought in a helpful way, Voss's thought? Because, of course, Voss was the pioneer. But who, has been, who have been people who you would recommend people consider having read Voss? Yeah, well, the first one you've already mentioned is Edmund Clowney. He took Vossian theology and preached it. So he transformed it into sermons which applied this uh, progressive redemptive history um, to a particular message that he's preaching from a particular text. And then there are other scholars who um, take biblical theology and apply it in the most technical way to biblical studies. Uh, Greg Beale, who's one of my colleagues, has done this remarkably both in his commentaries and in his books on biblical theology. 
Um, he develops themes such as the temple and sees it in the Garden of Eden and then he sees it moving through the tabernacle, the, the different temples, and then finally Jesus and the church. Um, so tremendous scholars who, um, Baucom, who lives here, mm. and many others who have developed uh, from Voss and with the advantages of scholarship on the literary quality of scripture, the historical quality of scripture, and the theological quality of scripture, and gone into great depths with those. Mm. So mm. really, we can step on the shoulders of giants. Yes, yes, yes. And I think fascinating, um, as you're speaking of giants there, as you're drawing attention to characters like Augustine and Calvin, and drawing attention to the, the warmth of their affection. I'm, I'm, I rejoice that in our time, you rarely now hear critic, criticism of what used to be called pi uh, pietism. I think that there was a frustration in the evangelical movement here uh, with what was considered to be pietism, whereas actually some of these great reformed preachers always preach to the affections. They always preach to the heart. And the closer you get to someone like Augustine, you think, am I reading John Piper? I mean, it's, this, <laughs> is, this is it's so lively. Yeah, and, and, right. and Calvin, you sense he wants you to see the beauty. Yeah. He wants you to see the glory. Yeah. And the flowering and the Puritans, again, the Sibs and Edwards and these, they want you to see the glory and the beauty in this. Now, of course, you yourself uh, know all about the, uh, the application of these things in the arts. You've written on the subject. You've, uh, your recent book... Uh, cre creation and cre created and creating <laughs> created and creating you've given decades of thought to this mm -hmm. uh, tell us some of your, your thinking and your uh, your ideas in, in this and maybe give a little bit of a pricey of some of the an introduction to your book so we don't have to buy it <laughs> <laughs> I'll tantalize you so you must, <laughs> there you go. You must buy it um, so uh, I've, I grew up in a family that loved the arts, uh, going to museums, listening to music. And so when I got to Labrie and found out how much Francis Schaeffer and Ruckmacher and others saw a profound impact between Christianity and the arts, you know, it was God's providential graciousness to me to lead me to the faith through these people. So that <clears throat> I've never had a problem with the application of Christianity to the arts. And of course, I've met plenty of people who do. You mentioned pietism. Uh, there are plenty of people who have a kind of Christianity that um, is very shy about engaging with any culture, let alone the arts in particular. Mm. Uh, of course, we have to do it the right way. Yes. And there are dangers, as there are in every field, business, law, whatever. Um, so the thesis of the book is that the original mandate that God gave to our first parents, affectionately known as the cultural mandate in some quarters, to go and subdue, fill the earth, replenish it under the blessing of God, was not only addressed to our first parents, but was his intention for human life uh, after Adam and Eve. And uh, what the argument of the book is that despite the fall, which might have had the impression that we abrogate cultural pursuits. Um, God continues to work as he redeems us in the realm of culture and specifically reiterates the cultural mandate um, all over scripture. You know, I, when I was writing this book, I did a, some of these word studies, you know, and it's amazing how much the language of be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and so forth, 
is found over and over again throughout the Old Testament and into the New. I'll just give you a quick example of it. In Psalm 8, when David is out there contemplating um, the stars, I presume, uh, he asks this wonderful question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And his answer is, and yet you've made him a little lower than the angels, and he begins to quote that passage of Genesis, which is called a cultural mandate. Um, and then it's uh, reiterated, literally quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, and applied to Jesus, who you don't see, but who is subdue, busy subduing all things, leading us into his uh, authorship. So um, and there's so many other examples of it in Jeremiah 29, in exile. What are we to do? Just grit our teeth and wait? No. Mm -hmm. Cultural mandate. So um, I try to argue that the cultural mandate is an ongoing command, but as we said about Voss, with each um, episode of redemptive history, there's a deepening, um, there's a widening, there's a more and more spiritual application. So you get to what we call the Great Commission, uh, which is said at the end of each gospel in different ways. And that, I argue, is the cultural mandate applied um, in a world where, because of sin, uh, we need grace and we need Christ's presence and leadership. Mm. So um, that's the burden of the book. Mm. Wow, that's, that's awesome. Fascinating. You actually do a word study, uh, Genesis. Uh, Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, and you're seeing reflection, you're seeing flourishing. Yeah, it's, it's repeated but developed and applied. And um, one of the arguments of the book is against those who would eschew culture in the name of uh, doing evangelism, meaning getting someone into heaven only. Mm -hmm. or reaching the soul of a person only. Mm -hmm. Now, evangelism, I'm all about evangelism. I do it, you know, as much as I can. But it's a full-orbed evangelism that is uh, looking to save not only the soul, but the whole person, families, institutions, cultures, uh, and applying the gospel to mm -hmm. every area of life, including the arts. Mm. So in the book, I take on... Uh, Texts that seem to be against the world, and then I say, but they're really not, you know. Mm. The contra mundum texts, <laughs> you know, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Well, of course not, Romans 12. Yeah. But be transformed and find out how good and true the law of God is by engaging in practice with the application of that law. Application in terms of, actually, this actually helps with evangelism in that... Um, uh, Henry Van Til is credited with having said, culture is religion exemplified and made explicit. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a prof profound observation for our time because we've had the moment of multiculturalism and now I'm planting a church among Muslims ah. in uh, East London. Wow. It's fascinating because most of the Muslims we know really don't really know very much about Islam. That's right. They don't know what the Quran says. And if you show them what it says, some of them are quite shocked. Mm. But they do know how to wear the things which their parents wore. They knew how to wear their grandparents. And, and they know these external yeah. things which become disproportionately important. Yeah, they can pray five times, but... 
the prayers are wrote or, or Absolutely. in Arabic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they don't even know it. Literally, they will have the children go to the Arabic school. Right. They'll be taught how to read it. They don't, they're not told what it means. Right. And you think that's, that's fascinating. But of course, I think, as probably Van Til would, would propose, there's nothing new in that. You know, we all have a tendency just to do the outward, uh, whereas the, uh, the gospel comes to the, the yeah. depths of the heart. I mean, Islam is one of the most legalistic of all religions, uh, despite its claims um, to have a God who has 99 names and so on, um, the, the average Muslim doesn't know Allah because mm. he's unknowable. Yeah. Um, you can obey the rules and hope he will approve you mm. on the last day, but you, act, you don't have much assurance. Absolutely of, of right. That. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I saw a fascinating debate. A friend of mine debated a Muslim guy. And uh, what was striking was how when the Muslim got up, he just berated all the, all the Muslims. He just got up and told them, why aren't you trying harder? And they were just shuffling about, they were fidgeting, they weren't listening to him, because this is what they get all the time. Yeah. And then my Christian friend got up and he said, well, why did Jesus come? He came because he knows there's darkness in our hearts. Mm. And he came to bring light. You could have heard a pin drop. Nice. It was silence, because the people were, they're not used to being spoken to in that way. It was a very memorable evening, and I do pray that seeds were sown. Now, so to what are you up at this moment, Bill? What's new? So um, I um, divide my life into two, because Westminster has given me a wonderful um, structure so in the fall and winter, I teach all my courses. So I have apologetics courses. I have a course on Islam. I have a course on culture, one on the problem of evil, and just a bunch of courses that I teach. And um, then in the spring, uh, they want me to write and travel. Mm -hmm. So I've been writing away, um, and I've, I'm always on some project. Uh, I have one in the can right now that's coming out in March called uh, The Christian Mind, okay. uh, following Blamire's book. It's a new series oh, right. that um, I guess Banner of Truth is putting out. Oh, wow. And then I'm currently working on a book trying to show the spirituality of jazz music. Um, so I'm always on to something. And then going around and speaking and um, trying to... Um, help people with their faith. I'm, I'm very, very drawn to university work. I love students. and um, mm. So that's my life. I mean, I have a perfectly beautiful family as well. And, um, but I'm on to, to use your language, th these, these uh, two areas of life. And I, I love it. I don't know any better. <laughs> Bless God. He has been good. He has. And finally, what advice would you give to people in our time? Maybe... Maybe you've seen something coming up, bubbling up a lot at the time. At the moment, you're saying, I'd like to speak into that. Or is there something you wish you had been told? Mm. You know, um, one, of, one piece of advice is there are so many issues surfacing, and then they go away. And um, you're rather breathless to keep up with everything. Now, it's important for Christians to try and respond to particular trends when they're important enough. But my advice would be, going back to the Psalms, um, God loves a broken and contrite heart. Have um, a mentality of brokenness and repentance before God every day, every hour, and ask him to uh, lead you into a deeper walk with him 
And um, those, uh, that deeper walk, when he blesses you, will be plenty of defense in, against all these trends. And it will also enable you to commend the Christian faith to our generation because you've been walking with God. Mm, mm. A lot of people want answers, 10 steps, method books. You know, many of them are good. Uh, but it's, it's walking with God and having him as your covenant um, friend that is what I would advise people today mm. to lead with, mm. whatever else they might be doing. Mm. Oh, that's powerful. And of course, you've seen great examples of that from what you said of, uh, of Schaefer. Yeah, well, he was a godly man. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic to have time with you, Bill. Thanks, Ben. Thanks ever so much. And... Uh, we uh, can commend the book. Created and creating. Amen. Thanks very much, Bill. <laughs> okay.